You're listening to The Artin's Team, a podcast by FAM designers on how art and design intersect with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Art has been a crucial element in many STEAM fields, from the aesthetics of architecture to the visualization of complex scientific data. This podcast celebrates the artistry in STEAM and highlights the critical role it plays in shaping our world through women's unique voices and journeys and their innovative work. We will also discuss how art and design can be used to communicate scientific concepts, spark creativity and innovation, and encourage young people to pursue careers in STEAM. Each episode features a member of our collective of artists, scientists, technologists, and educators who all share a passion for designing a better tomorrow. This is the Art in STEAM. Hello, humans, thinkers, doers, makers, creators of our futures. Hope you're having a good week so far. You're listening to the Art in STEAM, and I'm your host, Noor. Good to have you with us. To think about the climate crisis is to rethink everything built by humans. Every intervention, every invention, every time humans ignored nature's will and played God. This also means reconsidering our relationships with people, things, and the environment, the ways in which we relate, our values, social habits, behaviors, and our cultural rituals are all under the microscope. So what now? Who is responsible for fixing the damage caused to our planet to ensure we and future generations, other animals, and living entities have many more years to live on this earth? Is the onus to change our ways of being and doing placed on individuals, communities, policymakers, educators, and governments? The climate crisis is real and yet so hard to grasp. As designers of digital experiences and services, how might we help people address the various dimensions of the climate crisis? This is what today's guest will help shed light on through her work that integrates community engagement, collective action, and social wearable technology to attend to the climate emergency. We're joined by UK-based Singaporean designer and artist, Ling Tan, whose works explore citizens' interaction with the built environment and our collective agency in tackling complex issues using technology. Ling Tan works within the field of social engagement, technology, citizen participation, and politics. Her immersive outdoor experiences enable communities to understand and address political and environmental issues through their interaction with the built environment. Her artwork has been exhibited internationally, for instance, at the Centre Pompidou in France, Victoria and Albert Museum and the Barbican in the UK, Heck in Switzerland, and many more. Welcome, Ling. Thank you for joining the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Let's start with your journey, where you started and how you got to where you are today. Can you tell me a bit about how you became interested in interaction art, collective action and community engagement? So my practice was originally in architecture. So I worked as an architect for a few years in Singapore. I studied architecture in, in my university um, time. I actually 
got into interactive architecture and art uh, during my time in London, which is, I think, about more than 11, 12 years ago, where I did a master degree in um, Bartlett UCL, which is uh, surrounding interactive architecture and the use of technology. During that one-year course, it kind of got me really interested in researching on wearable technology. During back then, I think that was in the early 2010 time, where there was this huge trend in the use of wearable technology because it experienced a peak during that period of time. Mm. For example, one of the famous things was Google Glass, where I don't think a lot of people know probably now. I was really interested in how people navigate their environment using wearable tech. And as an architect, I think that's a very um, kind of very close to the heart because uh, as architect, you learn you have to learn to design spaces that people would use. So it got me interested in that and I started researching more about wearable tech and started integrating um, kind of experimental wearable tech into my work and started branching off from there. So I worked a few years on projects specifically using wearable technology to do data science work, uh, working with people to uh, prototype a series of wearable that uses gesture to collect people's subjective perception of their environment. So it started kind of getting more and more interested in the aspect of uh, the collectiveness because um, that was when I started getting, I guess, interested in how people make decisions together. How do we structure participation in a way that using technology that enables people to kind of gather together, make sense of their environment together and decide for themselves what they want to do with their environment. So in a sense, it's still very architecture in principle because mm-hmm. it's re- really about how people make decisions about the physical environment they want to be in. And um, so I worked a few years on that and then I started working on more different types of medium like interactive installation performances and um, kind of larger scale participatory work that might not require wearable tech per se, but inherently at its core, it's still about how people interact with the environment and how do they make decisions with information that they have. Of course, wearables are all about how we interact with people, but also machines. Mm. In one of your uh, your writings, you've called it a social wearable. Can you explain what you mean by social wearable? Well, social wearable for me is inherently wearable tech that can only function when you work as a group together. So if you look at some of the works that I do uh, that has to do with people collecting data, oftentimes those type of wearable tech, um, if you collect data by yourself, you can't really make sense of the entire picture. But as people start collecting data together, you can start to understand the situation with the environment that is dependent on other people's perception. For example, um, with um, air quality, to get Mm -hmm. people, if you are talking just about your own perception of air quality, that is very perceptual, that is very subjective. And in a sense, it might not be um, qualifiable when you relate to your own individual experience. But as a collective, if we come together to make sense of it together, there is um, a higher, almost a higher degree of accuracy because people, people interact with each other and also through this interacting, through the technology as well, we are able to collectively make sense of the situation together that help to justify some of the perception that we have and help to, in a sense, qualify some of the experiences that we have together, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And you have a a few projects that seem to be connected. 
around that. So wear on and wear AQ. Um, and then the most recent one, which is Pollution Explorers Collective Action um, in that order. And I was curious about how collective intelligence um, works with um, machine learning and how it plays a role in that project. Pollution Explorer, so it's a project that I've been doing since 2017. So it started with a series of very low-tech wearables where we workshop with different group of citizens in, in different neighborhoods using the wearable tech to capture their perception of air quality using very simple gesture sensing wearable. What happened in that uh, workshop is that people go out into the streets where they are familiar with the neighborhoods and we identify different locations in the neighborhood where uh, we have been collecting data beforehand and using machine learning to help us identify areas where we have missing information on the air quality data itself. So the way we try to harness it before the workshop is to get a lot of open source air quality data and sensor data from online using machine learning algorithm to help us track places where there's missing information. And using those uh, information, we then get people in to use their perception to kind of qualify and try to make sense of um, the missing information there. The purpose of it is kind of two level. The first part is to really, it's almost like an experiment where we wanted to see how accurate is our own sense of the air as opposed to a machine. So what, what do you mean by um, subjective sense of the air pollution or the air quality? It's about how you feel the air is at that moment. So if you think the air is good, you do a certain gesture. If you think the air is bad, you do a certain gesture. And we train, we kind of teach the participant what gesture to use when they, when they think the air is different things. So for example, it's very simple. If the air is good, they raise their hands up and the wearable will capture the data. If you think the mm -hmm. air is bad, they put their hand to the nose and then the wearable will capture the data as well. Okay. Through the workshop, we collect real-time data of what they think the air is at that moment in time at that geolocation. So we capture those data and while we are doing the workshop, we also use a mobile air quality sensor to capture what the machine says is the air quality at that point as well. To see if it coincides. Yes. <laughs> so there was two parts to it. So there was the front part where during the workshop we were doing this and when we come back from the walk, everyone looks at the data collectively. So they will look at the, the in that area, how many... How, what does the majority of the people think? What does the mind? I mean, why is it that people have different understanding of the, the air quality there? So mm -hmm. we talk about this. And then we look at the machine data and get them to make a judgment for themselves whether they think the air, they sense, whether their perception is as accurate as a machine. And then after the workshop, through running a bunch of this uh, workshop at the same time, around the same period, we then do a bunch of machine learning at the back to then qualify and see how accurate is our sensors, our human sensors, as opposed to a machine. And what was interesting during with that experiment is that we found out that at any instance, a human sensor is 75% accurate in terms of um, our sensors. So what it means is that if you think the air is good at that point, the chance of it being good is pretty high. But it could also be really bad. It could also <laughs> be very bad. And what, that was really the interesting thing, because when we were doing the walk, we were 
we, we were stopping at different locations and getting people to talk about their own experience with air quality and air pollution mm. in their neighborhood. And one of the things that I remember very clearly was there was one, there was, it was in the summer, there was one workshop we, we ran in the summer where we can smell the smell of barbecue food. Mm-hmm. And when we stop at that position, a lot of people think the air is good because it smells yeah. of food. Yeah. But the funny thing was when we were back at the workshop, we were talking about that location per se because the air quality is obviously bad because people were using, you know, wood fire to barbecue food. Mm-hmm. And then the funny thing was, well, not funny, the interesting thing was a lot of people knew that the air was bad, but they felt good about it because it was the smell of food that evokes that good experience. So it is, I think this is the kind of thing that we want to tease out with people to understand that air quality is very transient it's a lot of times with with this discussion about air quality a lot of people think that you can just plant machine sensor to tell us whether the air is good or bad but the issue with air is that it flows it's it's very from where you are standing you could be we could be two meters away and the air you are smelling is different from me who's standing perhaps in the park whereas you are at the junction so it's really to get people to understand that that relationship is always it varies and you can't necessarily rely on the machine to tell you things. So in that case, what agency do you have as a human to then take control of your environment, given that the machine might not be as accurate? So that's where the second layer comes in, where through running the workshop, we are running those data experiments. But inherently, it's about getting people to think about their own agency in tackling the issue in their environment. Now that you have this control of you know, the data and the idea of understanding your environment better, can we then move on, move beyond awareness and move towards collective action? So that's where um, the collective action project comes into play. So that's, um, that's the Pollution Explorer Collective Action is another experiment we did uh, through Nesta funding during pandemic time where we couldn't use the wearable because it was during the pandemic and it was locked down. Right. So... We did this experiment with 60 participants in East London where rather than focusing on getting people to go out into the street to sense the environment, we should have already done it. We already qualified that, you know, through it, 75% accurate is our level mm-hmm. of accuracy. So we bring the learning to them and we got them to look at how they could work together to reduce their carbon footprint. Carbon footprint as a way of qualifying air quality in a sense because air quality is... is kind of a subset of the bigger issue which is climate change in itself as well and carbon footprint is one thing that people always talk about and it's something that people can relate to because it's got to do not just about air anymore it's about electrical consumption which affects air quality yes exactly because electricity Mm -hmm. affects air quality as well because it's not the air air quality that's affected in your house but it's in the sub is the power station that is pumping the smoke out so there's a lot of relationship that again is intangible is invisible with air quality so what we did was a very simple experiment over the period of three months where we got them to choose from a menu of small actions they can do at home that would reduce their carbon footprint so things like for example turn off your kettle make sure that you turn off your kettle electric ele- the, the electricity of your kettle because standby electricity generates a lot of electricity i think a lot of people might know, but are not aware of, of that, doing that at home, turning off television, for example, turning off the plug of the television. Right. Or even doing Everything's plugged like, in in my house. Yeah, exactly. Mine as well. So it's like, I think getting people aware of that and doing that as a small action that's doable, it's achievable, but how much effort do you want to put into it? 
So, <coughs> sorry. And so things like that, or for example, we have one of the action that I think a lot of participants were very interested but very hard to attain, which is the three-minute shower. So rather than <laughs> having a long bath, you have a three-minute shower. You, you have a game with your partner and try to you know, shorten your, your, your bath time. And uh, also we have the other action that reduces more carbon footprint, like going vegan, buying local produce, going uh, meat-free for a week or things like that. So the participant gets to choose from this menu which action they want to do every week every, and they report at the end of the week how many times they have done it. And what we do was we get them to work in groups of 10 where they look at their collective action overall every week and they then strategize, collaborate together to figure out who can help each other take on more work if someone couldn't do it that week. That sounds fun also. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of almost gamifying it, but again, getting them to understand um, small actions in their everyday life could make a big difference, even though it's um, it obviously it's not feasible in terms of the impact that they have. But it's to understand collective intelligence in the sense of whether can people, people collaborate together and what, how do they find in terms of the benefits that they get. And I think one of the things that we learned from the three months experiment is that a lot of the participants have found that they got into a habit of doing something and they actually are more in tune to, more prone to um, carrying on the, the behavior afterwards. So, so that's kind of something that we are trying to see whether we can move towards getting people to change their behavior in order to impact the environment for, um, for in terms of long-term, long-term impact. That's amazing. And that, that leads me to the next question that I had, which is how do you measure the impact of your work in terms of the social and environmental outcomes? So that's, uh, I mean, that's a long, long time question that I, I think I will always have with the work that I do, which is that it is, in a sense, if you want to talk about legible impacts that you can mark it down on the paper, it's going to be very hard to qualify because a lot of the work, for example, with air quality, like I say, is invisible. You can't really see the actual impact in, immediately mm-hmm. when you do the work. But yeah. the idea is that through this series of work, this type of work, we can get people to hopefully change their behavior in the long run and, and hopefully help affect other people around them. So like, for example, with the collective action project, through the way of kind of getting people to do change the behavior over time, I guess practically it is really very hard because I, I've been trying to figure out through the work what is the way that I could show to other people or even for funders on a practical level, how do we show that there's an impact in this type of work that we do? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, for example, with local authorities that we spoke to for Pollution Explorer, it's ultimately about reading the hearts and minds of people. That's beautiful. And in a sense, it's even the authority know that there is not something that is qualifiable on the paper that you can really justify that. But ultimately, it's really about seeing how we could, in the small run, do small action that could change people's mindset about things. That's beautiful. So as I was reading about your work, I also thought about uh, Dan Ariely. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. He's a professor um, and author of psychology and behavioral economics. And in an interview with AX Foundation, he said, if you tried to manufacture a problem that people would not care about, it would look like global warming. 
And he didn't say that because we don't care about global warming, but because he has a few reasons that, you know, it's long term in the future. Um, it's not feasible. We can't see the change. It's uh, for something that's coming later that might not come. It's for people that are not born. And so all of that logic kind of makes sense why maybe individuals are feeling um, like they can't actually impact that future. You know, it feels like it would need a movement and a huge effort to launch or to get people really interested, almost like something contagious, you know. Mm-hmm. But how do you think in your experience, based on all of your experiments, could it be possible, if, if at all, to get people, more people interested and more people to care without being obsessed or fanatical about global warming? While you're talking, I was thinking of do people actually understand that this climate crisis and whether it's impacting them? I mean, I feel like living in London, I feel like I'm experiencing that every day. I mean, the weather is chaotic. It's, it's the season is shifting and it's, I mean, it's something that I think everyone can feel it. Reacting to what you were saying earlier mm-hmm. on about whether people can understand this, I think that of recent years, I would be surprised if you will be living in a in a in a black box if you don't experience the change around you and know that there is something going on that is wrong about the environment that we are in. Um, but I think, in terms of getting more people on board, I think one thing that uh, um, I I experienced through the work that I do is that a lot of times when you tell people who are not aware of the issue or are not interested in it. For example, like with Low Carbon Chinatown, when I was working with um, trying to get a lot of elderly participants to be involved in um, doing work that uh, reduce their carbon footprint in cooking, is that um, oftentimes with participants, um, you have to find the right angle and the right language to get them interested in a topic. And it does not necessarily mean that you should tell them in straight on that it is about tackling climate change because mm-hmm. it could be about just getting getting into their interests for example with cooking as a way it's almost like almost like a trojan horse where you kind of get them interested in the subject of cooking and through co- the act of cooking you teach them about climate change and get them to understand about things that they um they might not know but what was interesting was when i was doing those workshops with um the elderly participants uh, especially, is that a lot of times I think we probably stereotype them thinking that they don't, don't care about the future. Most of the participants that I work with are aware of the situation and they already have been doing things that to help reduce their impact on the environment. But it's, it's just that they are not aware that those actions are already reducing their impact. For example, with, for, um, for example, with cooking itself, uh, with the elderly participants, some of them have already been cutting down electrical electrical consumption, but it's because they want to save costs on electrical. Right. <laughs> and they didn't necessarily equate this to saving the environment. There's a lot of blaming going on with uh, the younger generation on the elderly, where, whereas I, I feel like they are the one that's actually doing a lot of action on the ground and just not telling anyone about it. So I think just going back to your question of how do we get people interested and, um, and changing their mindset about this and being more aware, it's it's really to find the right language and to making sure that it's relatable to their everyday life and not something that's aspirational, which I think is 
I think it depends on people as well. Because there, I mean, there are there are people who goes to social movements and protests um, to make a change, and that there is effective for different groups of people. But I think ultimately we have to look at the way we want to live our everyday life, and through that we can then look at how that experience could be changed for the better if we are able to tap into this aspect for the participant, if you see what I mean. Right. So bringing awareness and impacting on small changes in people's lives, that's where we can start working on affecting um, the climate crisis. It might sound kind of feasible but not aspirational if you if you see what I mean because mm-hmm. when people think about it they think that oh it's just a small action that you're doing you're imp- affecting only one person so why bother to do that but I think the interesting thing is that when you talk to any people that's active in the climate uh, climate change is that we have to change systemically right we have to affect the government policy we have to do that in order to make a big change but that takes time that's takes year of work to get to that point. Protest movement and social movement can change the needle. But when you do it in a way that alienates the ordinary citizen, you, we can't move everyone along with us. Yeah, you can't guilt trip everyone. Exactly. The world was built like this. It was designed for us to you know, dispose of Tupperwares and, and, and everything. And now what do we do? Yeah. <laughs> we have to change the way that we do things, uh, but the world has to change around us too. Like you say, we can't guilt trip people because people's action and everyday life is affected by the environment they are in. And for example, you know, Tupperware, the use of Tupperware, it is because some people just doesn't have access to other things that is more environmentally friendly. So we can't necessarily blame everyone for the things they do. With all the conversation about food, and how it's impacting climate change, because I think it makes up more, almost 50% of the carbon footprint in terms of the consumption of food, and you know, especially with meat, which everyone knows by now that red meat is the one that uh, has incurred the most amount of carbon footprint. But if we look mm-hmm. at, you know, for example, the working class, where in order to have a meal on the table, they have to go McDonald's to buy food that is high in processing and high in carbon footprint, but because it's cheap, so right. how do we make sure that people, everyone can afford to go through that route of being more environmentally friendly? Because you have people who are vegan, who are vegetarian. But if you look at a lot of times in London, people who took on that movement are probably the middle class. It's a luxury to eat exactly. vegetables only. Yes, it's a luxury for that. And how do we bring people, not just the middle class, but everyone along in the conversation so I think that small actions that is doable at home is one way to do it. But obviously, it's not just about that. It's about gathering people's momentum. It's about getting people to be on the same path with us and everyone moving on. That's where I think that will make a change, hopefully, in the future. How do you see uh, the relationship being between design, technology, and you know, how, how, and sustainability? How do you see that evolving in the future? Um, and how do you see that evolving in your work? Design technology and sustainability. I think it's three... It's interesting. It's almost three competing things that sometimes doesn't really go well together. For example, with technology, with you know people talking a lot about cryptocurrency, 
NFT mm -hmm. and just the amount of carbon footprint that it incurs, it's definitely not sustainable in, in a sense. But um, I think we are still at the very early stage of the use of technology because it's only, what, 20, 30, 20 years? 20, 30 years in the experiment mm -hmm. with technology, especially within the field of art. And I think that there's still a lot that we have not found. We have not, that, that's not been explored. And, and it's, it's interesting to think of it that way because um, it also means that there's still a lot of positivity in how we can use technology to help us move, to be more sustainable in the future. Absolutely. I mean, now there's this obsession of thinking about, you know, the dystopia or the utopia, what, what, what will happen. Um, and, you know, it's it's up to designers, I think. And obviously there's policymakers and everything, but it's up to designers who design these products for people to use that um, to make sure that it doesn't go towards a dystopia or to yeah. try and mitigate the bad and keep yeah. some of the good. I have one last question, which I tend to ask all of our guests on, on here. Uh, what advice would you give uh, girls and women um, who are curious about the future and who want to enter uh, STEM fields? A lot of girls probably have, I mean, in general, I think young people have heard a lot about just, you know, if you have a passion, go for it. And so I think that's, in a sense, the first thing that we, we all need to have, which is that you need to have that passion. But I think on the practical level, I, I was thinking about that when I was walking back home and I was thinking what would be the advice I would give to myself if I was younger. And I think one thing that really helps is to make sure that if you are passionate about um the field itself, you need to stay focused and know that it's a long run, it's a marathon, you need to have the stamina to go for the long journey. And I think a lot of times uh, when, you know, when I was younger as well, we, we do sometimes lose focus and feel, feel like we do not want to carry on exploring something that, you know, it's you, you might want to give up and just, you know, do a, be a normal mm -hmm. salary worker in maybe a big company that you know have have a safe future in a sense but I think it's really making sure that you have the stamina and know that you are it's really for it's almost like a marathon that you're running and staying focused and also making sure that you know when you need to take the break that you need and be ready to go for the long run when you see a project that you want to do. That makes it even more exciting to enter the fields Thank you for, you know, bringing awareness of the environment and the air quality with your community work that you're doing. Um, and I can't wait to see where that journey continues to take you. Thanks for having me. You're listening to The Artin's Team a podcast by FAM designers on how art and design intersect with science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Art has been a crucial element in many STEAM fields, from the aesthetics of architecture to the visualization of complex scientific data. This podcast celebrates the artistry in STEAM, 
and highlights the critical role it plays in shaping our world through women's unique voices and journeys and their innovative work. We will also discuss how art and design can be used to communicate scientific concepts, spark creativity and innovation, and encourage young people to pursue careers in STEAM. Each episode features a member of our collective of artists, scientists, technologists, and educators who all share a passion for designing a better tomorrow. This is the Art in STEAM 